Well, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad to be back with you. I'm going to open this with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the fellowship we have in the body of Christ. I thank you for Lakeside, Lord, how you've worked over the years to build up a a church that is sound in doctrine with a faithful shepherd who preaches and teaches your word week after week, including this morning, just the unadulterated truth of Scripture. And so we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that in our time in Sunday school, we'll be able to again open the word, That pray that you give me wisdom to communicate clearly, and that you'll give us ears to hear so that we can apply the truths that we hear week after week to our lives. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, as we continue in our study in Joel, we find ourselves at the end of Joel chapter 2, specifically Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. Now, I didn't go back and check the dates, but when I introduced the book of Joel, I shared a couple things. One, the reason I was teaching from the Old Testament was because Rig said, why don't you teach from the Old Testament? It made a lot of sense. I hadn't done so. And all scriptures inspired by God, and including the Old Testament, so it was a very timely admonition, why don't you branch out a little bit and teach something from the Old Testament? But as I said at that time, whether anyone would remember it or not, the reason I chose the book of Joel, once I decided, yes, Rig is right, I should teach something from the Old Testament, the reason I taught from the book of Joel had to do with a question that Debbie asked me one day. We have a lot of discussions about a lot of things, and we interact with a lot of people at Lakeside, a lot of people outside of Lakeside, and she asked me about a particular passage in the book of Acts. And what did I think it meant in light of some things that were going on? And as I thought through it, I looked at the text and I thought I should know the answer to this, but I wasn't certain of the answer to it. I knew there was an answer, but I realized, hmm, I probably should look into this. Well, it just so happens that what she was asking me from the book of Acts was a quotation from the book of Joel And it's the quotation of the text that we find ourselves at this morning. So the journey through Joel started with Riggs' suggestion, and then it led to Debbie's question, and it all culminates in the text that we are going to be covering today. We find ourselves at Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 32, as I indicated, and I'm going to give a little bit, as I always do, a little backdrop. It's been a couple of weeks since I talked. But really, we transitioned when we hit verse 18 into a new flow of the book. Joel, as we've said over and over and over again, was a warning to the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. He was warning them that they needed to turn away from their sin, their neglect of God, their ignoring God, or else they would feel his wrath. In fact, all of chapter 1 shows that they had already felt the Lord's hand of discipline when he sent plague after plague of locusts that destroyed their economy. Destroyed their economy, put their livelihoods at stake, put their very lives at stake because of starvation, and absolutely prohibited them from worshiping God in the temple as they were called to do because what they needed for the daily sacrifices was taken away. And as we transitioned into chapter 2, Joel continued the warnings and said, look, that was bad if you don't repent, something that will approach the day of the Lord... It's not the day of the Lord, but it will approach like the day of the Lord is coming, and that judgment will be even worse. And the picture at the beginning of the book is of a a strong army 
Later history shows that it might have been the nation of Assyria, but an army that was relentless, that was unstoppable, and Joel was in essence saying, this army will come and they'll do to you worse than the locust. But in the midst of that darkness, Joel held out hope. He reminded them that the Lord wants your heart. If you'll just turn to Him, even now, return to Him, repent, the Lord can make everything whole. The Lord can heal you spiritually. The Lord can heal your land and He will do so. And as we covered over a length of time, verses 18 to 27, it seems the implication of the text is that the people did repent. And that for that generation that originally received the letter, they repented and they received God's restorative blessings. But as we covered those blessings, as we covered what the God's response to the genuine repentance of His people would look like, we saw many things, but we also saw, even in the midst of this, that some of these things still haven't occurred fully. We saw that God showed compassion, verse 18, then the Lord will be zealous for His land and will have pity on His people. In other words, if the people would repent, and it seems they did, the Lord would be Zealous. He would remember his covenant. He would be compassionate to his people. Verse 19. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you'll be satisfied and full with them, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. In other words, not only would they be able to eat and drink and be satisfied, they'd be able to worship again. Those were the elements of the daily sacrifices. Verse 20, but I'll remove the northern army far from you and I'll drive it into a parched and desolate land and its vanguard into the eastern sea and its rear guard into the western sea and its stench will arise and its foul smell will come up for it has done great things. In other words, God will intercede. He will take care of the enemies of his people. Verse 21, do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness will turn green for the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. The land, the animals that were all suffering because of the locust plague, because of the hand of God's discipline, would be restored. Verse 23, So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for He has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. In other words, God is making it clear. Look, when you turn to me with all your heart and repentance, I can undo everything. You'll have everything you need from me as long as you acknowledge me, as long as you repent and turn to me. Verse 26, you'll have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people will never be put to shame. Now as we went through this, I explained to you that I believe there was a, a close application and a far application. The close application is the generation who repented, I believe, received those blessings and they were protected. But we know from biblical history that the nation later was put to shame because another generation turned away from God. As is the history of the entire Old Testament, they had God's 
blessing on them. They had been provided for. They had been rescued. And yet the next generation turned their back on God. And eventually Judah was judged. So as we covered this, and it's very critical to remember this in the context of what we're going to be dealing with over the next couple of weeks, there were promises that were made that God would do these things And there was a sense in which they were fulfilled in part by that generation. But there's another aspect, as I covered in detail as we went through it, that is still yet to come. That's going to happen at the end of the Great Tribulation and during the Millennial Kingdom. That's when God will truly be in the midst. That's when Israel, all that remains those physical descendants of Abraham that remain at that time during the Great Tribulation will repent. As Romans says, all Israel will be saved. So as we have this text in front of us, we come upon those same issues again when we get to our text this morning. Which time frame is an issue? Now, if all we had was the book of Joel, this wouldn't be that challenging. I'm going to read this section of the book of Joel again for the first time, but I'm going to read it in its entirety. But if all we had was Joel, then the issues would be very easy for me to teach. But that's not all we have. Because Peter chose this passage from Joel and quoted it as part of his famous sermon on the day of Pentecost. That's the passage that Debbie asked me about. And that's where things get a little bit challenging. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to read this text. I'm going to read to you Peter's quotation of this text. I'm going to identify a couple of issues, but as we go forward, we're going to be unfolding this bit by bit. I'm not going to interpret this based on what Peter said per se. I want to interpret what his original hearers would know, but we have to interact with what Peter said about it to figure out its implications for us. It's interesting, I took Hebrew in seminary like I was required to do, and I did well in it, but it's unbelievably hard, and I forgot it as quickly as I took it. But if I were to pull out my Hebrew Bible, the scholars that I'm reading on this tell me that in the Hebrew Bible, the verses at the end of chapter 2, what we call verses 28 to 32, are actually their own chapter in Hebrew. They make up their own chapter because they're so significant. So follow along in your Bibles, I read from the New American Standard, but follow along as I read Joel 2, 28-32. It will come about after this, that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now, if you've been reading and reading and reading Joel, 
those will sound familiar to you. But for people that haven't read Joel, those words sound familiar because as I already told you, Peter quoted this very thing. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read to you Acts chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. Again, I'm going to try and teach through Joel, but we're going to have to interact with Acts, and so I'm going to go ahead and lay the issues on the table. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. And if you recall, Peter was there, and people had been speaking in tongues. Everybody in Jerusalem was amazed. They were puzzled. They're wondering what in the world's going on. Verse 15. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters, and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I'll grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So here's the interpretive challenge that we come across when we have this verse because of this New Testament reference. There's no question from Joel's perspective these verses talk about something in the future. That's not in dispute. And there are a lot of views on these texts. That's not in dispute. He's talking about the future. The question is, from our perspective, did this already happen? Peter is referencing something at Pentecost. And Pentecost was 2,000 years ago. Was the prophecy of Joel fulfilled then? Did Peter mean something else? In other words, as we go through this, is this something that's in the past? Or is this something that's in the future? And the significance of this, in part, comes from, and I don't remember the exact words, shockingly, I don't write down every question my wife asked me verbatim, but it all comes down to what is going on today in Christianity around America where everybody thinks they have a new word from God. Peter says in verse 17, and it shall be in the last days, and most of us assume we live in the last days, according to the New Testament we do. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And you don't have to look far to find out that there are many people who identify as Christians, and I'm not saying some aren't, I'm just saying they identify as Christians and they say, I had a dream from the Lord. I had a vision. God showed me something new. There are people that call themselves prophets and they don't mean somebody like John the Baptist who forcefully declare the truth. They mean God showed me something new that's not in Scripture. Let me share it with you and you alter your life accordingly. Because thus saith the Lord... In other words, should we as God's children be prophesying? Should we be listening to people that say they have visions? Should we be listening to people who say, I had a dream and God showed me? I mean, we teach at Lakeside that the Bible's all we need, that God's revelation is complete. Are we wrong? 
Is Peter telling us through the words that we're going to be studying in Joel that all of us should be doing these things? Or at least some of us? These are weighty and significant issues. I don't encourage you to study anything other than the Word of God, but if you look at the landscape of Christendom, at least in my experience, from going to other countries, the greatest export of Christianity from America is Pentecostalism. Pentecostals go to these verses and say, that's all we're doing. Their prophets and their dreamers all point to this verse or verses that they would say, complement this and say, that's all we're doing. God showed me. Well, did he? Are we missing something? Or are they missing something? So I hope, over the next couple of weeks, now that I've just planted a giant issue in front of you, that we will see the answer. I believe we will. But I want us to see it from the Word of God, not just because I can out-talk somebody else. We have to think carefully. We have to think clearly. And I pray that as we walk through this text, the answers will encourage us and they'll strengthen us and they'll give us a better understanding of redemptive history and they'll give us more confidence in what God has given us in His Word. So I'm going to set up a simple outline, as I always do. Outlines are just teaching tools. They're not inspired I don't even necessarily always like the words. I may refine it over time. But it's an outline that I believe will accurately show us what the text would have meant to the original hearers, which is what I'm always targeting. What did it mean when it was written? What was God trying to say? Why is this in the Bible? And then as we've gone through it and as we go through it, I'll try and connect dots to where we are now and address these big questions that absolutely are in our landscape today. It's going to require us to look at Peter's quotation of Joel and decide what was Peter saying. So, to set this up, my outline is relatively simple. Like I said, from Joel's perspective, there's no question he's pointing to the future. And he's pointing to Israel's future deliverance. So I have it marked out a simple outline, the signs of Israel's future deliverance. The signs of Israel's future deliverance. And we're only going to begin to talk about the first of those signs today. But it's this. God's Spirit will be experienced by all of His people. God's Spirit will be experienced by all of His people. Verses 28 and 29 Really, I'm not even going to fully address everything here, but I'm going to start with verses 28 and 29. I'm going to reread it. It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. And even though I've already given a little review, we really have to anchor this with what has just transpired. Because the beginning of this says it will come about after this. After what? After what was said in verses 18 to 27. But for example, look at verse 27 again. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. 
So whenever this occurs, ultimately the final, ultimate fulfillment of this, the culmination of this, it will come about after. After that occurs, when God is in the midst of Israel, and He is the Lord and there is no other, and His people will never be put to shame after this. Now in the broadest sense, and I tied in some of this as I was teaching the prior verses, this is pointing, I believe, to the time that ultimately will culminate in Jesus' second coming. Because of the imagery of war, and some of that we're going to be covering these verses later, I believe it references aspects of the great tribulation. When God gathers together all his enemies and there's a final battle, and then Christ returns, and then there's the millennial kingdom, where God will literally, Jesus will literally be ruling on the earth. All new covenant believers will be there. But Joel isn't dealing with all new covenant believers. Joel was dealing with the literal, physical descendants of Abraham called Israel. And that becomes, I believe, as we go through this, an important consideration. The book of Joel was dealing specifically with God's chosen people. And I believe all of this provides the context for verse 28. And as we go through this, obviously as I talk about it, you'll see this come out in my interpretation of this. But when Joel says it will come about after this, I think he's talking about all those events. Approaching the great ultimate day of the Lord. So again, if all we had was the book of Joel... We didn't have any reference by Peter and all we have were these words. It would not be hard to say that he's talking about something that still hasn't occurred. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Now again, these words have meaning, but it all comes back to when are we talking about? He's clearly talking about the Holy Spirit being bestowed, being given. It's interesting because he used the language of pour out my spirit... And he had used the language of pour out in terms of rain previously. And just the idea is the abundance. God's going to pour out his spirit. His people will experience it. Now he says he's going to pour out my spirit on all mankind. Literally all flesh. And while it could look like that means everyone, we'll see very quickly from the context, he's talking about Specifically, the nation of Israel. He's not talking about every human being on the earth, even though the language looks that way. The context will show very quickly he's being very specific. The promise of God's Spirit wasn't limited to Joel. For example, in Ezekiel 39.29. In Ezekiel 39.29, we hear this. I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Zechariah 12.10 
says this, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So, so there's a sense in which Joel, even though he says all mankind, and like I said, he's going to narrow it very quickly, this is not treading new ground. This is God's promise to his people. I'm one day going to give you my spirit. There were times in the Old Testament where individuals had God's spirit, generally for leadership, like a king or a specific prophet, but he's talking about something comprehensive here. It will come about after this that I'll pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see see visions. This is why I say he's already clarified who all mankind is because now he's being very specific. Your sons and daughters. Who is your? It's the nation of Judah. The physical descendants of Abraham. Israel. Your old men, not generic old men, but specific to God's chosen people. Your young men. Again, these are very specific references. And the description of what will occur are all evidences, manifestations of what the pouring out of God's Spirit will look like, what the implications will be when God's chosen people have this event occur. Sons and daughters will prophesy. They'll have revelation from the Lord to share. Again, old men dreaming dreams. This is not just dreams. I mean, I'm not that old, but I have dreams. We all have dreams. This is something different. These are the types of dreams where God reveals things to people. My daily Bible reading, I'm in part of what I'm reading is in the book of Genesis. I'm reading through the life of Joseph. In Genesis 41:25, Joseph was interacting with Pharaoh. And he said, Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. That's the type of dreams being referenced here in Joel. Your young men will see visions. 2 Corinthians 12.1 makes it clear the Apostle Paul saw visions. Boasting is necessary that it was not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. One commentator said the difference between a vision and a dream is just one you're awake, one you're not. But they're both intended to be supernatural revelation. So the point Joel is making is that when God pours out His Spirit... On the physical descendants of Abraham, his children, his chosen people, it's going to be evident. There's going to be manifestations of this. And it's not going to be limited to only a select few people. It's going to be across class lines, across boundaries. Verse 29, even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. In other words, what he's describing is a pouring out of His Spirit that is so comprehensive that it's not a respecter of persons. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free. It doesn't matter if you're a part of this blessing. The benefits are going to be felt by all. Every member of God's people Israel will have the opportunity to experience the supernatural presence of the Spirit of God 
in their lives, regardless of their age, their prestige, their role in society. Many commentators have connected these verses to something that Moses said in Numbers chapter 11. In Numbers chapter 11. And there was a situation where some people other than Moses were prophesying and someone that looks in our vernacular like a tattletale ran to tell Moses, hey, they're doing this. Verse 27, so a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Verse 28, then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. In other words, people were prophesying and it wasn't Moses. Joshua said, hey, we got the report, stop them. Verse 29, Numbers chapter 11. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. In other words, it'd be wonderful if everybody was genuinely impacted by the spirit of God. And what Joel is saying is that statement of the heart, so to speak, is going to be the reality of the people. Now again, you can imagine to a beleaguered and struggling nation this promise would be like a glass of cold water in searing heat. At the time of the writing of Joel, the implications of the new covenant were not there. We know from the promises of God that if we have faith in Christ, we're indwelt by the Spirit of God. They couldn't have imagined that kind of privilege. They didn't have a frame of reference. That wasn't a part of their history. In fact, that's why Jesus over and over had to teach his disciples, I have to go away because I'm going to send the Spirit to you, the helper to the comforter. It's hard for us to comprehend because we don't know anything else that the fact that we're indwelt by the Spirit of God would have been mind-blowing to anybody to ever hear it in the Old Testament. That was something in their minds that was reserved only for kings as a spirit of anointing, or an occasional prophet, someone as powerful as Elijah. But regular people, which is what we are. And the idea that God was going to interact with everyone, again, was mind-blowing. Prophecy, visions, dreams. Even as I say these things... At least in my mind, questions pop up in my head. So one day there's going to be prophecies and visions and dreams and yet you read the book of Revelation and it says anyone who adds to the prophecies of this book, all the curses of the book are going to be added to them. Huh. We absolutely believe and teach at Lakeside that there is no new revelation from God. That God, when he completed the scriptures, has given us all we need for life and godliness. And Joel's talking about visions, prophecies, and dreams. I'm telling you, as an initial statement that will build out over time, but based on everything that's happened in the book so far, I'm telling you that what Joel is talking about is going to occur in the future. But as I just said, we already have the Spirit of God poured out on us. We're indwelt by the Spirit. 
We have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They're all evident for us. So since the Spirit has been given to us, should we be those who are prophesying? Should we be dreaming dreams where we can tell people, thus saith the Lord? Should we be having visions of something new? I can remember in my early Christian days hearing of people who should know better that wanted to go listen to these people claiming to be prophets or whatever because they said, I don't want to miss out. I don't think it's true, but I don't want to miss out. Should we be looking for YouTube videos? And Peter said at Pentecost that this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. As I said before, these are good questions. These are weighty questions. They're practical questions. It's an indication of why it's so important for the text that we're studying. It's going to take us some time to work through it. I hope by the time we do, things will be clear. But I've raised some questions that are hard questions. That's why Debbie asked me in the first place. If somebody says they've got a dream and you look at this text. So these are good questions and these are hard questions. And I'm going to encourage you all come back next week and Rig's going to answer them all. (laughs) It would be wonderful. So let me close today in prayer. But be praying for me and praying for all of us. That as we walk through this the Lord will provide clarity in some difficult circumstances. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, it is exciting to dig into questions like this. Not just for the sake of academic discussion, Lord, but because it impacts our lives. Error is swirling around us in every way. The enemy is active. The liar and the father of lies, Satan, is trying to deceive us and confuse us. And he's continually trying to point people away from the truth of your word. Lord, as we wade into these issues, I pray that you'll protect us. Protect me. Give me clarity, Lord. Many of the things that I'm studying are difficult to understand. Great men of God, faithful men of God have different ideas. Lord, give me wisdom. And I pray as your Children, as we walk through this together, that you'll protect us, that you'll enlighten us, that you will equip us so that we can understand your word and its implications for our lives. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.